Women's Energy Council podcast, where we explore lessons and advice by some of the most senior female energy executives, focusing on transformational leadership. I'm your host, Alexandra Schiffer. Today I'll be speaking to Iman Hill. Iman held Managing Director, President, and Head of Development and Operation positions in companies including BP, Shell, BG Group, Sasol, Dana Gas in the Middle East, and Energian. In this episode, we explore lessons in leading teams with respect, not fear. The importance of having tough conversations and close teams, and balancing family and a successful career. Iman has also been through one of the most tragic events that I can possibly imagine, but came out even stronger. She is now my inspiration, and I'm sure she will be yours too. Iman, very nice to have you with us. Hello. Hello, Alexandra. It's very nice to be with you, and thank you for inviting me to do this podcast with you. Uh, You have had an absolutely fascinating career. It looks very straightforward. I'm sure it wasn't. And you had quite a few challenges along the way. But let's go all the way to the back first and tell us a little bit about where you're from and what was your upbringing like? So how did that affect you? I am the eldest of six children, four girls and two boys. I was born in Saudi Arabia. My father's Palestinian and my mother is Egyptian. They're both doctors. Mum and dad decided to send us to school in Scotland because of its reputation for great education. And they found a school in Edinburgh that specialised in boarding for very young kids. I was five and my two sisters were four and three. We could barely speak English when we arrived at Grange Home School in Morningside in Edinburgh. My parents, before we left, made it very clear that I was to look after my two sisters and that this was really my biggest purpose and make sure that their well-being was, they were good at all times. And I think that when I reflect on it, you know, with hindsight, this is one of the things that has helped to shape my sense of responsibility. I've always thought of it actually as sort of my first leadership challenge because I was terrified, but here I was in charge of two equally, if not more terrified, younger (laughs) siblings. So that was the school decision. I think there are a couple of other things I'd like to mention to you. My parents, though Middle Eastern, they were, I would say, quite progressive in the way that they thought about things and in their approach to us as their children, if I compared them to some of their peers. They both encouraged us always to, you know, reach whatever we wanted to be, to dream, to go for it, really. My mum always used to say to me and my sisters that in life you mustn't rely on anybody but yourself. So, you know, get your education, stand on your own two feet before you think about anything else and don't rely on anybody to make your life for you. And my mum was a doctor who insisted on driving in Saudi Arabia uh, in the 1970s. <laughs> so that was, that was interesting for us um, as a family. I think my dad also just, he never put us in any boxes, you know, so he wasn't, you know, girls don't do that kind of thing or don't study that or don't do that kind of career. So, you know, we were very lucky to have very supportive and and I think progressive in their thinking parents. 
What I'm most grateful for, though, because it's actually been the rudder of my life, is that my parents taught us values of being a good person. So good to other people, honest, and the value of doing the right thing, even if it was the most difficult thing. So there we are, boarding school, which makes you stand on your own two feet, does have its drawbacks in that you don't build such a strong relationship with your parents as if you're you know, at home all the time, and uh, started off in Edinburgh. That's incredible. And you know, when I heard Saudi Arabia, I was expecting all the stereotypes to come out, but it, it seems like that is just exactly the opposite from what you're describing. I was going to just jump into what you just said about that was your first leadership lesson, really, to look after your sisters. What was that lesson? I think the lesson was to, you know, sometimes we've all been in situations where, uh, as a team, for example, we're faced with what seems to be a monumental task or monumental delivery of a business objective. And if you're the leader of that team, you might also be petrified, but you cannot stand in front of your team and show that, you know, you have to essentially be there to instill courage, to make things stable, to describe for the team how this can be done and, okay, what are the hurdles that we might face? You know, so you have to be there for your team. That's my feeling anyway. And I, I had to be there for my sisters because they were, I mean, I was very young, but they were very young. And without the language, you know, without being able to speak good English either, they really clung to me in the beginning. And you then put yourself to the back burner. And uh, in a way, it's a positive thing because it makes you think less about what you're feeling and more focused on, you know, making things good and stable for, the, for my sisters, which is what I was charged with doing. Gosh, that's so interesting. As a single child, I cannot possibly imagine having five siblings, and, but it almost makes me want to, maybe being on your sister's side, <laughs> just to have that protective <laughs> hand over me. So let's move over to, you know, Aberdeen University. Uh, you did an MBA and a master's there. And from what I understand, you did biochemistry, computing and business. Was that the point where you thought, next step, energy industry, I would love that? Or what, you know, what was the choice for that course? And then how did that transition to the, to the sector happen? Well, I, I received an unconditional offer from Aberdeen University to study biochemistry. Actually, if I'm very truthful, I wanted to do medicine, but I missed, <laughs> I missed getting into medicine by one grade. Oh, so in your um, parents' steps then? Yes, I, I was really interested. I used to go to their clinic, you know, in my school holidays. And actually, I can diagnose a lot of things, <laughs> even though I'm, you know, I'm not at all trained. Oh, wow. But so biochemistry was kind of the next hardest thing to do in the science field uh, next to, to medicine. And that's why I chose it. And I received an unconditional offer from Aberdeen University and took it because I wanted, you know, to get away from Edinburgh and to get away from basically where I'd grown up. And... I then did the master's in computing and business because I felt that wrongly now that I know more about it, but I felt that biochemistry would have sort of pigeonholed me into either research or teaching. And I don't have the personality for that. I'm, you know, I need to see things, see what I do and I need to do things. And 
so that's why I did the, the master's after my bachelor's degree. And then after graduating, I joined BP. And you're probably wondering why on earth, yeah, like you asked, why did, she, why did you go into the energy industry? You can't miss the oil and gas industry if you live in Aberdeen. And when I looked into it more, I was attracted by the global nature of the industry, the chance to see the world, experience different cultures. And it, to me, it seemed like it would be a place where you'd be presented with lots of difficult issues and challenges to solve with a lot of high technology you know, input and need. And it also seemed to me to be a place or an industry where you could continue to learn long after formal education, and that appealed to me. So I applied to some of the majors with offices in Aberdeen and joined BP, as I said. I think I was very lucky to join such a well-run company. BP made the training, education, and, and progress of its entry graduate top priority. So BP made me into a petroleum engineer in a way that I believe is far more powerful than if I'd showed up on their doorstep with my petroleum engineering degree. I was rotated through all the disciplines under the petroleum engineering umbrella, so that, you know, pet physics, drilling, well site work, even economics and planning, reservoir engineering, production technology. So rotated through all of those disciplines for hands-on working experience for a period of 18 months to two years. And this was supplemented by a three-year program of classroom training during the first three years. So that was how I became, if you like, a petroleum engineer. That's incredible. I mean, they must have done a great job because you've never left the industry since. (laughs) They did do a great job, actually. BP is a really good training ground. And I love my job. I love the industry. I love the challenges of it. It's not something that ever ever has got boring to me so and that's why I've stayed it's not been without it huge challenges probably maybe touch on those a bit later but the love for it and the challenge and the enjoyment outweighs the difficulties absolutely and you know since BP you've joined quite a few very well-known bigger organizations BG Group, Cecil Petroleum International, there is Danagas In all that journey, what did you find most challenging about leading those teams and leading the change? Well, I'd like to just tell you very briefly about why I decided to leave BP. Uh, Because it was a conscious decision. I could have stayed there. But about, you know, I'd been there about 11 years. And I had a really strong intuition that the only way to make a step change in my own development was to stop being comfort comfortable, take myself out of the comfort zone of the company that I'd grown up in, the established networks and the known, you know, the known ways of doing things. So I decided that I would leave. And and actually what I found um, is that by working in a diverse range of companies, you know, I've worked from in majors, mid caps and small independents, it has taught me to navigate many different cultures and ways of doing things. It's also honed my flexibility and the ability to adapt my leadership style to fit a particular situation or company culture. And just by the virtue of you know, moving to different environments, it's rapidly grown my relationship building skills. I've been privileged, Alexandra, to gain experience working in all of the continents of the world and to learn how to operate and create relationships to support business growth in so many different cultures. And again, before I go on to answer the core of this question about the challenges of leading teams and making change, 
I'd like to take a couple of minutes to acknowledge the company that has made me the leader that I am today. It's very important because I truly believe that Shell is the company that has made me the leader that I am today. Um, this is a place where I was trusted to take on some very big challenges and where I learned and developed the most because I was supported to go beyond what I perceived as my own limits. Uh, we all know Shell. It's a company full of the best minds in the industry that executes technical and commercial work to the highest standards using the right methodologies and practices, which then allows you to take those with you to those companies who don't know how to do it that way. It's also the one place where I experienced behaviors that were congruent, systematically congruent with the company's stated core values and wholly aligned with mine. And that's very important to me. Coming to the challenges of leading teams, uh, I like people. I like stretching people and supporting them to deliver. Developing staff and seeing them grow and succeed is one of the biggest pleasures of my working life. For me, the challenge of leading a team is about knowing your team members, but beyond the superficial and enabling, not creating, but because we create it together, but enabling a team culture that allows mutual trust amongst all, where team members can show vulnerability and where very tough conversations can be had without anyone getting twisted off. Because in the end, everyone understands that those tough conversations are, they're in service of a common purpose of the team, which is to deliver what it's charged to deliver. As a leader, I totally abhor any form of management by fear because I believe that only those leaders who don't have the emotional intelligence to lead in any other way do it this way. So a personal challenge is always finding the balance between being supportive and making sure your team know that failing to deliver has consequences. And this is something that I'm always conscious of. So it's really for me, it's not the leadership of teams that's the biggest challenge. If we're using the word challenge to mean something that prevent, presents some difficulty, in my experience, the biggest challenges are with your peers, specifically how, uh, as a minority, and we have to remember that to this day, men still fill 90% of senior positions in our industry. So how do you transcend the informal networks, you know, the men's lose, the golf course, etc., to build solid trust? So that, for example, you can say something to a male colleague very assertively, he would accept from another male colleague, but has him running around saying you're aggressive and emotional because you're not a man. Uh, this also can translate to wider suspicion that can have male co colleagues questioning your decisions and undermining you. The only important thing to take away from what I'm saying is that the building of true trust with peers and having them not feel threatened is a challenge and is something that we consciously have to think about. Having said all that, I want to be clear that this is not a poor me or poor women moment. And I don't say it to disenfranchise my male colleagues. It's just a truth for many of us, maybe one that doesn't get voiced very often. And it's one that means we have to develop great relationship and influencing skills. So if you have that already as a disadvantage, which is based around some unconscious biases that I think as a society we realize more and more uh, but obviously needs more training uh, to get that understanding a bit deeper. How do you actually overcome that? How do you build that trust? Where do you start? What I've, what I've found by real live examples, say you're doing something at work and you agree something with a colleague and then 
something happens. You don't know where that thing has happened, but it undoes, you know, what the agreement was and takes you backwards. I found that the only way really is to sit down and have an open conversation and to, to say, you know, we agreed something, this happened. Why did that happen? Can you, you know, can you please shed some light onto maybe some other conversations that happened without me being there or some other reasons that I'm not aware of? So the important thing is to actually face it, you know, call it if you like, sit down with your colleague or colleagues and say, I've noticed this, you know, am I, am I seeing something that isn't there? And to then, I found that having that conversation clears the platform, you know, creates a platform of trust to build on and maybe brings also light to things that you didn't know. And essentially it's the start of a journey together to commit to each other, to be, you know, to try and to start trusting and to behave in a way that builds that trust. And you worked in, you worked in a various of different teams uh, over the years. Where do you feel you've helped the most? I, I've always, I want to touch on this uh, because it's something that's very dear to me. I've always been a staunch believer and supporter of diversity and inclusivity. And I mean, who wouldn't be? Isn't it common sense that the companies who create a culture where every single employee feels able to contribute in his or her own way and is valued for their different ideas and ways of doing things are the ones that are going to see it in their bottom line? So where I feel I've helped is being an example of difference, an example of different ways of thinking and and doing things and having that be very helpful to the team I'm in, have it being helpful to my peers, to my supervisors. Uh, I've always contributed to the formal diversity and inclusivity programs of the companies I've been in. And um, I also hope that I've been a good example to other women that you can reach as far as high as you want as long as you hold yourself accountable to deliver. And also to my children, that you can be a senior woman in this industry and a, and a very good mother. And that's amazing. And I, you know, I hope more people do get to, to hear your story and, and be inspired and motivated because for, for so many, uh, I think women always have that fear that they have to choose family or work and it can't be both. So taking that on a slightly more personal level, do you feel like it was ever harder to progress because you're a woman? We could spend an hour on this alone. Um, <laughs> and the idealist in me would say, no, progress should always be on merit. But from my own experiences, uh, I would say, I would characterize it that the hurdles are higher and there are far more of them. That's how I would characterize it. And how far you progress depends on your sheer will and determination to keep knocking the hurdles down. And if I may, Alexandra, a personal observation and a bit of a plea. I have worked with women who, for some reason, seem to have decided that the only way to progress is to lose their womanness and behave like men. You know, even to the extent of being much harder on the women than the men in their teams. And my plea is that this sort of behavior can only do us a disservice. So let's celebrate our differences and demonstrate really by our consistent delivery and accountability that those differences can and do make as much impact uh, on the bottom line. As a manager of the team or the CEO um, or anyone in the hiring capacity, what's the easiest hurdle to knock down? This is a very good good question, a good topic. There, There are so many... There's lots of talk and there's lots of, you know, uh, 
almost all companies talk about diversity, inclusivity, and wanting to have more women uh, it, it coming in and also being retained. I think that what we fail to look at is that almost all the systems uh, are and culture is essentially, whether we like it or not, set up in a kind of male gendered way. Those become the norms of behavior, the norms of how you would operate in a meeting, the, the norms of how you would make a decision. And somehow it, becoming conscious of that, whether that's coaching each other in a management team, whether it's having a coach for the management team, somebody who, who is able to uh, play back to you an unconscious bias, for example, or you know, an unconscious prejudice. I think that is the way that we will start to make those changes. And also taking a specific look at where in our organization do the cultural norms and the systems that we have, whether those are HR systems or, or whatever, support one gender or a certain pool of ethnicity more than they do another. So it's a long journey and it's a journey that takes a lot of energy and it's not a tick box exercise. And, and it's really the companies that commit to making systematic changes, whether that's by saying like Shell did uh, in, in, in the um, early 2000s, you know, we will have, we will set a target to have 50% of all of our country managers as nationals of that country and we will have 20% of women in mid and senior management positions and by setting those targets the company actually started to look for and identify that talent pool that could start to form the funnel to fulfill those targets and systematically look at what are the gaps that this talent pool has you know each individual in order to allow them to step up and take on those roles and then put in place development plans to, to actually fill those gaps. So it's a structured approach. It's a real commitment. It's absolutely, you know, needs championing from at all levels, not just at the top. Uh, and it's a long journey. I can also add... Um part of it is looking at the unconscious bias. Another, I feel, very easy thing that companies can just be aware of is, for example, the networking time. Um, we found that when we tried to host breakfast briefings for um, for more female representation, it didn't really work because a lot of women still drop off the kids in the mornings and they didn't, they couldn't attend an eight o'clock breakfast briefing. So it wasn't the right time for the, for them uh, for networking. So we found just simply changing that time to lunch or to have some of our diversity events around afternoon tea time, so three o'clock, made biggest difference. And it was such a small change to make, but it accommodated a lot more women. Rather than organizing hunting trips, they can be just <laughs> aware of, of this slight, slight change that can, can make a big difference. Yes, I agree. And this actually fits in, it, it describes exactly what I was meaning in terms of some of these systemic things that you know that happen in organizations that nobody really thinks about because it's it's okay for you know more than 50% of the population of that organization and it's always happened that way 
And, you know, there is still also a bit, I, I guess, I, I hope that it's, it's going away, but there is also still a bit of, as women and as a minority still, do we always want to be putting our hands up and saying, well, actually, you know, hello, eight o'clock doesn't work for me because I'm on the school run. You know, because sometimes that can also reinforce these, you know, unconscious uh, biases or prejudices. So it's, um, I think it's a question we're going to be wrestling with for, for quite a while. But I, I think we have made some progress. And I hope certainly for my daughter, actually not just for my daughters, for all, of the, for all of the people who are working, that this is something that becomes much more of a, you know, a norm, the norm is that we are catering to all sorts of differences. Absolutely. And with that, I think it really leads nicely to, you know, what were the biggest hurdles that you really had to overcome that were the most perhaps difficult decisions you've made, but really contributed to your journey as a leader, but also as, as a human being? Thank you. That's a, that's a great question. I'm, I'm, I'm loving that we we're getting beyond the superficial um, with this. So <laughs> There are two, Alexandra, uh, the, and I'm going to mention both, if you don't mind, because both of them had some, some learning that I'd like to share. Absolutely. The first was when my eldest daughter, Nadine, was nine or 10. She's 25 now. And uh, she came to me after work one day and said, you know, mom, I really don't know my, where my home country is. I've been traveling with you from when I was born. I'm tired of leaving my friends every two to, two to three years. And starting over in a new country, new school. I'd like us to go back to the UK. I was in my dream job as GM of Shell Egypt and chairwoman of Shell Companies in Egypt, in my home country and in a company I loved working for. And I was, if I'm really honest about it, devastated. I wrestled with myself for about a week. Uh, my selfish self wanted to tell her to suck it up. She'd get over it. But there was this other voice really reminding me of my promise and purpose when I decided to have children. And that was to be a present mother. And being present in that moment, I, I, I knew, was really to listen. That meant listening to Nadine's concerns and doing something about them. So I left my dream job in the best company I've ever worked for and took a step backwards in my career to get our family back to the UK. And I'd be lying to you if I said to you that, you know, I don't often think, what if? And I'm sharing this because I know that as women, we probably have more than our fair share of those moments when we wrestle with balancing family and work and the guilt or regret that often follows the decisions that we, that we make. So that was my first, uh, first moment that I still, you know, remember and think about. And the second experience that had a profound effect on me was the death of my husband in 2009. He died unexpectedly and left me as a 40-year-old widow with our five children. They were then aged five to 14. At the time, I was senior vice president for Brazil with BG Group, looking after the ultra-deep water pre-salt Santos Basin assets, which were a huge part of BG's portfolio and value at the time. I know that Talking about death and, and loss makes most people uncomfortable, and some may say that it's too personal to share. But I'm doing so in order to share what I learned from it, which applies to all areas of my life, including my working life. Basically, first of all, life is short, and it's too short to just coast. You know, do your nine to five, pick up your paycheck. So I want to make an impact in everything that I do. 
I know now also what's important and I don't really sweat the small stuff anymore. And that's no mean feat for a born warrior. Uh, family is everything to me. And I'm fortunate that I've managed to instill that in my kids too. Third thing, and this is, this is an important one, very important one, is I, I, I've been, I feel I've been to the depths of the pit and climbed out. Because an experience like this changes you at the most fundamental level. And in a way, you have to reinvent yourself. And when you resume your life journey, there's a sort of surety and confidence that you can handle the biggest challenges. You face the unthinkable and you're still standing. So it would take a lot more to knock me down now. Also, I, I, I think more and more purposefully and thoughtfully about my legacy. Now, legacy is a big word and it may be heard as arrogance, but everybody leaves a legacy. It's what we're remembered by when we leave this world. I feel that when you're conscious about your legacy, you're always reflecting on your purpose for everything that you do and how you show up for all the people you connect with in your life. So for me, it's made me a much more thoughtful, supportive and collaborative person in my work life. And the last thing I wanted to share, because this really was just such a, a heartwarming thing at the time, was that I experienced the most selfless, you know, selfless kindness and the humanity of, of others. Because I went back to work two days after Albert died. That was my way of dealing with the shock. I wasn't in a good way and, and my team could see that. And I started having panic attacks, sometimes as frequently as five or six a day. Thankfully, those stopped quite a long time ago now. But my team started to recognize what I looked like when I was trying to quell an attack and carry on as if nothing was happening. So whenever we were in larger meetings with, with teams from other parts of the company and I started to have a panic attack, one of my team would always suggest a 10-minute break and they would quietly take me out for a quick walk by the river. We were in BG's offices in Thames Valley Park, which is a lovely setting. I believe basically that my team shielded me. They understood my need to be busy at work and took care to minimize any potential gossip or reputation damage which could have come about because I wasn't at my best at all times. And I, I will always remember that, um, that, you know, people, my team essentially stood around me and held me up. And it was a wonderful feeling. And it's one of the greatest things that I remember about my working life. Gosh, I don't really know what to say. Um, I think that just to, just wanted to just add one thing, if I may. And I, and it, so all of us, I think, in one way or another, go through these events, which are, you know, momentous for us. And it doesn't need to be something like as momentous as that. But the, you know, we can choose either to get in the cave and stay in the cave and never come out, or we can choose to come out. Maybe we will be different. For sure, we will be different. You know, harness that difference and pat ourselves on the back that we did get out of the cave and we did start the journey again. I hope so. And um, back to your, so your first story, um, kind of made me feel glad that my child doesn't speak yet. So <laughs> <laughs> I just, I have to look forward to certain conversations. That's the way. It's far away. <laughs> One of the things that really, really showed um, how positively you, you think uh, is some of your notes on um, the recent piece when we asked 
about the energy industry in 2030. So looking for that vision of the industry in 10 years, but also the effects of COVID-19. And you've mentioned some positive side effects um, of that. So I wanted to elaborate a little bit of what positive lessons you feel and side effects might come out of the current quite devastating situation for most people. There's, I think there, there are always positive things. And we, we, you know, we, we will all recognize now that we don't need to travel all the time. So, we, you know, I hope that business travel will reduce by a huge amount and this will be great for our planet too. Uh, I also think that, you know, for a long time, even as far back as I remember when we started what was called the Women's Initiative in BP back in, you know, the late, uh, so 19... 1989, late 80s, early 90s, that, you know, we've talked a lot about family, you know, flexible working and family-friendly policies. And, and I hope that one thing that will, will, will become much more acceptable is that, you know, flexible working will be a norm. I think it has always been seen, whether it's been spoken about or not, as a career-limiting choice. And that has limited the number of women and men that would want to, you know, work flexibly and work from home sometimes. And, you know, at the end of the day, we have a, an issue in the oil and gas industry with uh, attraction, retention, you know, of, of, of women. Uh, it's still the societal norm that women do the lion's share of looking after the family, rearing children uh, and looking after the home. And so I'm hoping that this, the idea that we can work from home flexibly and it doesn't mean that we're less committed or less accountable or we don't want to, you know, collaborate with our colleagues will, will have a positive impact on the retention of women in our industry. Yeah, I think you mentioned something very important, which is it is important not to be asking for special treatment. And I, I feel like we're getting to the point as society to provide those options what i f- hope the next level would be is to offer the same choices to men so women are less pushed into into being at home or being flexible when they don't want to but maybe men do um, no i totally agree with that because i think there are you know there are i know there was a number few of my male colleagues different from companies i've been in that would have wanted to stay they've been given to or to be flexibly working from home they've been given the option and and i really you know one if i if i look back one of the reasons that we we didn't want to call it the women's initiative in bp when we started the whole diversity thing was that because actually you know for things to become to work they need to work for the other half as well so the final question i have which i always ask is the one book that you would you could recommend everyone to read it doesn't have to be about leadership, but something that really changed your mind or, you know, you go back to those lessons that you've learned from it. And I'm not going to mention a book that's going, you know, on our usual list. So I'm not going to mention The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I love I'm that going book. To mention, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to mention a book that's called The Boys in the Boat by Daniel James Brown. It's a true story of nine, you know, working class American boys and their journey to the Coxed Eight gold medal in the 1936 Berlin Olympic. The book basically makes you hold your breath, makes you cry. But above all, for me, 
it's a real story of leadership at its best. It's about you have accountability through the whole story, teamwork, and really what it takes to create a high-performing team. And I've read that book twice now, and I go back to it for certain pieces, certain leadership challenges from time to time. So it's called The Boys in the Boat by Daniel James Brown. Well, and my Amazon list just got another item in it. So thank you for this. Uh, Iman, thank you so much. That was very inspirational and very emotional at times. But thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And we hope to see you soon. Thank you very much, Alexandra. I very much enjoyed talking with you. Thank you very much for listening to the Women's Energy Council podcast. Please follow us on Spotify or iPhone and don't forget to subscribe to be the first to listen to the new weekly editions. You can do that at Oil and Gas Council website, iCouncil. Have a lovely week and stay safe.